Welcome to the Wizardist Podcast. I'm Paul Canetti. This is episode 13. Uh, if you listened last week, I did my first ever solo episode. And this week, we're back to the normal format of me and another human being. And today, we've got a really awesome human being. Her name is Tara Vora. She works on the news partnerships team at Facebook, a little company that you may have heard of. And uh, basically, she works with news organizations and specifically journalists at those organizations to learn about and really leverage the Facebook platform uh, to its fullest extent. Prior to this, Tara worked in the media world uh, as the VP of Business Development at Foreign Policy. And prior to that, she was uh, in the financial world at J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs. Uh, she has an MBA from Columbia Business School. And Tara is just a really great person to talk to if you happen to be interested in media and news and tech, which, of course, I am very, very interested in. It became very clear during my conversation with Tara that she just really cares about the news and cares about journalistic integrity. And it's just really cool to know that there's this team at Facebook that is really working with and advocating for these news brands. And, you know, I wish I was clever enough to say this when she was in the studio, but really putting the news in the news feed. We covered topics sort of all over the map. Um, we talked about Facebook's famous algorithm and how it sort of surfaces certain types of news over others. We talked about the role of legacy media companies and how they are adapting to this new world. We talked about how publishers sort of has broadened as a term and of course individual people are publishers and how there's still a real role for traditional publishers and publishing companies. We covered business models uh, when it comes to media. I was asking Tara just about how she even got into this stuff and how she ended up at Facebook after, you know, starting her career on the finance side of the spectrum um, and sort of making her way through media and eventually into tech. And uh, of course, we talked a bit about fake news, about these sort of bubbles and silos, these echo chambers that we create online for ourselves. And uh, the whole conversation was just super interesting. And I'm excited for you to hear it. As always, I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and to tell your friends. And uh, it would be apropos if you shared this on Facebook. And with that, I give you Tara Vora from the News Partnerships team at Facebook. So hi. <laughs> How's your day? Day was good. Um, like I mentioned, I got in from DC this morning. Um, so Facebook does these news days um, around the country that basically invite not just publisher partners um, that we work with on a regular basis, but also um, journalists and local media from um, around the surrounding area to come and kind of have a day of learnings of best practices on Facebook. Um, also give them a chance to ask really in-depth questions and um, and 
come to like a help desk session basically. And we get a lot of really good questions from it because um, people try to, you know, try to find or are always finding new ways to sort of use the product. And um, they'll like ask something that's really specific. And we're like, oh, we didn't actually think of that use, but now we're going to go back and learn about it. And it's always amazing also to see how many um, like local stations use the live API to broadcast and um, it's just, it's amazing to see like how integrated Facebook is in a lot of these uh, stations. That's cool. I'm trying to, so like in the development community, you know, there's like F8 or there's, you know, and mm-hmm. beyond outside Facebook, there's these sort of developer sessions where these big companies will have these sort of hands-on things. So it sounds kind of like that, but for media publishers? Yeah, it's exactly. It's actually, um, they're, they're meant to be a lot smaller. So F8 is like, is huge. Um, this is more like, um, I'd say about up to 120 people or so, um, meant to be really hands-on high touch. Want to make sure that we're hearing everyone's concerns and talking to them and answering any questions that they may have. And it's also, um, there's definitely a major slant towards local. So a lot of these bigger publishers have huge social media teams and have a kind of, you know, down to a fine, fine science. Um, in a lot of cases, like, especially on the broadcast side, these local stations, you have broadcast journalists who are doing their own social media and are, and are actually being measured on um, success by their social presence. So they really come like it was crazy. Like when you meet people who are anchors in local markets, you can just tell that they're an anchor just by like the way they enunciate and um, and just like their look. But it's great. Um, but you know, talk giving them advice on how they can make you know bring out their own personality and their brand and some strategies for them. And that those are always kind of fun conversations. How do you know when someone is a local broadcaster? Um, Hmm. Well, they've got well-coiffed hair. Um, that's one. Um, I'd say ladies are always in a, a good shade of matte lipstick. Mm. Um, and they're just like, like kind of like they're lit up magnetic personalities, like right when they come to the desk. It's not like... I picture them as like almost like cartoonish. In a way, yeah. Yeah, it's a, like there's definitely like a power suit element to what they're wearing and it is like a pattern that would stand out on TV a bit or something like that in the tie maybe. <laughs> um, but they're also super personable because, you know, you think about it, they do do a little bit of, uh, you know, live on the scene shooting. They have to be able to engage all sorts of people in questions and conversations. So yeah. I always enjoy the conversation. That's really cool. Uh, so how long were you in D.C. for? Um, I was there for two days. We also did um, meet with some of our publisher partners. Um, it was very exciting to be in the NPR building, for oh, example. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, do they was, do all the podcasts there? They do. We actually did get to go up to um, the floor where they record podcasts. Um, and I, I'm a, a big fan of It's Been a Minute um, with Sam Sanders. Yeah. And I like spotted him from 30 feet away. And I told, I said to the social media manager who we were walking with, I was like, is that Sam Sanders? She's like, do you want to meet him? I felt like I was really meeting a celebrity. It was very exciting. That, meeting a podcast celebrity is funny because it's amazing that you like recognize. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it would be funnier if it was like you heard a voice down the hall. Oh. You're like, oh my God, wait a minute. <laughs> That's, yeah. yeah. Well, he has such a distinctive voice that like when the second he started talking, it was just like, I felt like I was listening to a podcast. All That's over. so like, cool. Very clear. Yeah. I love NPR. Um, Planet Money, I think might be my favorite. Oh, okay. you listen to that one? Yeah. I do listen to yeah, I love it because it's like 15 to 20 minute yeah. little just like bite-sized nuggets, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like the topics are so random. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. You must like, I would imagine meet with a lot of 
publishers, media companies that you actually like are a consumer. I know it's the same for me. Like I'm meeting media companies all the time and, and like it's so much cooler. Like when I walk into the Rolling Stone office, yeah. and there's like, you know, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Like I love Rolling Stone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, it definitely is. And you do feel an affinity towards um, the brands and their content. Um, and I think it helps also as like a consumer sometimes when I'm taking a look and I'm saying like, you know, we will look at metrics and figure out why something might have resonated and, you know, why a certain piece of content or why a publisher seems to be trending a certain way. But um, sometimes I can just, it's nice when you're able to speak to it as a consumer. What's a lot harder um, is when we're working with some of some publishers who maybe not only I don't necessarily read their content, but I work with a lot of political publishers and maybe your views don't exactly mm. align with them. And that, that being said, it's, it's actually been a really great experience for me because like everybody's just like, you know, we're all people, we all have like our views and, um, and also like there's, you know, now I've started to read some other content and it's an interesting, like bringing me more to the middle of just like understanding where other people are coming from and where, um, where the journalists who are working for some of our publisher partners are coming from. Um, and then advising them on strategy and trying to like put myself in the shoes of a consumer of their content and what I might find interesting or, um, or valuable. So, yeah, I would imagine, right. Going into it's probably like harder to empathize. I don't know if that's the right word, like yeah. with opinions or a sort of viewpoint that you don't agree with, but right. In my experience, when you meet those companies, like they're just people. Yeah, exactly. They're, that's it. It's just a group of people just like doing basically the same work that another media company is doing. Like they're all, they all function essentially the same way. Exactly. Exactly. Um, right. But they're, you know, it's easy to sort of villainize when you just look at like at the entity level. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the people level, it's like, Oh, these are just very nice people doing nice things. Yeah. Like, and they're concerned about their social media strategy too. Like, you <laughs> right. know, everyone's like worried about worried about the algorithm as they say. So, yeah. you know, I, I bet that people like lose sleep over that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely a question that always comes up. And I think like the algorithm as a phrase has taken on like a Voldemort type of, <laughs> you know, like terminology. And it's, um, it's one of those things where I often think about how, Facebook has what two two billion two billion users, and um, it has to be a different thing to each of those two billion people. So it really is like it's an it's a unique experience for each of those two billion people. So while there are algorithmic things that guide it, it's going to be based off of each reader's behavior and what they're gravitating towards. It's interesting to me that media companies have not really internalized that approach on their owned and operated properties. Yeah. As if you go to the New York Times website and I go to the New York Times website and someone else goes to the New York Times website in some other part of the country, we're all going to see the same website. You know, maybe it's, it's different based on country or region. Um, I mean, I can attest this, even if someone builds an app with Maz, like, it's not personalized to the individual user. Right. Um, and then you look at the wild success of a platform like Facebook and it's like, huh, like maybe there's something to this. Yeah. You know, same with Amazon. Like if you, when you go to Amazon, I go to Amazon, we're going to see different things. Right. You know? And so why is it that you think media companies haven't really embraced that mindset on their own websites and apps? Well, um, and just for, just for the, for the record, I actually am still a little bit of a dinosaur because I go to the homepage. I that's like still how I 
tend to use news. And so maybe I can sort of speak to why it is that I still enjoy doing that, which mm -hmm. is that sometimes it is nice to know what the editors find really valuable and what pieces of content they want me to, to, to read. And I think um, a lot of legacy publishers are really hanging on to that idea also that, you know, we kind of not know what's best, but we have a better sense of what our, um, our readers or our core audience should be reading or would be most interested in. Also, sometimes it's like we worked really, really hard on this story and it's a flagship story and like people need to hear it, even if it's not like the first thing that, um, they might normally click on. Um, you know, I think even I've noticed like some of the push notifications that I get, especially from the New York times, actually like some of them are those more like in-depth stories that maybe I wouldn't have surfaced in newsfeed or maybe I wouldn't have surfaced if, or wouldn't have been the first thing that I clicked on if I went to their homepage. But, um, I think that's part of the reason. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if you think that because you used to work in a media company right? and as a consumer, you sort of like, I know, right. I've worked with edit teams before. So I think about those same sorts of things like, oh man, like the editorial voice here is so great. Yeah. And I try to really wonder about like the average consumer that isn't really thinking about any of those factors. Mm -hmm. And they're just sort of judging this as just an objective experience. Yeah. You know, it is interesting, like coming from a background in, you know, I don't know what, what people at Facebook call not Facebook media. Mm. What do you call not social media? Just media yeah just media okay yeah uh the media yeah. world the yeah. non-social media world the industry yeah yeah um like you obviously can t sort of talk the talk when you're meeting with these with these publishers and with these journalists and like um which is obviously you know i would imagine one of the reasons you're there but on the other side when i go to these conferences for instance even though i've never been invited to one of these local broadcaster okay. facebook conferences but like, whatever we've been staying know. out of new york because it's like such a served market yeah so yeah, yeah. but once we do one like maybe we'll do like facebook news day like i don't know jersey city or something Ooh, and i then, like yeah. it like just like slightly <laughs> just off a little, the beaten a path. little different yeah, yeah exactly um but, you know, every year I feel like there is a sentiment that, you know, I'll go to a conference in one year and it's like, watch out for the algorithm. Like, don't rely too heavily on this because yeah. if they make one tweak, you know, so you should really concentrate on your own and operated. And then I'll go to the same conference. And the next year, everyone's like, Facebook is amazing. All our traffic's from here. We're not even hosting articles and videos anymore where everything lives on Facebook mm -hmm. and it sort of seems to swing back and forth in that way. Yeah. Um, and of course I'm in the business of owned and operated myself, so I'm a little biased, but like I really do wonder for the average publisher, you know, especially maybe these smaller local companies. I mean, you can essentially run your whole business on the Facebook platform. Mm -hmm. You yeah. don't even necessarily need to have a website. Of your own. Correct. And I mean, that's what the model of something like a cheddar or um, the blaze, like they're basically going all in on social and being there. And you can, like you're saying, basically create a, a brand new presence. And, um, and also in general, I think if you have pieces of content that are some of the, you know, call it the salad, if you will, with the fun, with the fun stuff, um, that will get served to your users because um, they are liking and engaging with other pieces of your content that maybe are lighter. Um, and that's just one other thing I would say about, I think, 
to your point about having legacy media make their O&Os really um, a little bit more dynamic is that, yeah, may, people maybe would come and see the first thing that they really wanted to read, but the 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 hope is sort of that you're 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 pulling you're pulling people through um, the sort of the funnel of following for more articles, and that's a little bit easier of a process when they're coming to a page and they're seeing a bunch of stuff that they want to click on and open up right away. Right, as if they're at your site already, it's not like an accident. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. At that point, maybe everyone's on more equal footing or, right. or whatever. Yeah, I, I, that seems right to me. That. You know, social is sort of this discovery mechanism, and then a much smaller percentage of the people that would see a story on Facebook might actually go through the trouble of going to the the O and O. Where if you're already there, it's maybe because you want that curated experience, because you want to sort of immerse yourself in that one publication, right? Instead of in sort of a mix and match. Yeah. Sort of situation. And it's interesting. I mean, I think also as, you know, like you're talking about businesses fully operating on Facebook, um, I don't know where the ecosystem is going to go. But, you know, as you have some of these journalistic personalities building their presence, like journalists are still, um, you know, really wed to Twitter, I'd say. But as as there become more options and opportunities for journalists on Facebook and that process becomes a little bit easier for going live and telling your story or reporting on things and, um, you know, getting picked up by multiple outlets. Like what does that look like in 10, 20 years when you can maybe collect a a set of journalists together who all are operating on Facebook and bring them together in some sort of a a grouping? Like does that constitute a quasi publisher? Like I don't, I don't know. Um, so when you are talking about these sorts of journalists, are they, they're typically, I would imagine, working under some sort of umbrella brand. Like, are there a lot of independent journalists on Facebook? Um, Is that a thing? They, oh, that's a good question. I I wouldn't say that they that that's that common, but someone like, I think of, um, say even like Roland Mart- Martin, he um, has a huge presence and has built basically a following and he does a lot of shows on Facebook himself basically as just like a one-man operation then you could I mean either take that to a bigger publisher and you know even bring it to tv or something or you could um just continue to build out your brand maybe hire other you could start your own publisher essentially yeah well I think about sort of the equivalent with YouTube you know where you have these individual people creators that um yeah that come up and you know um maybe not journalistic news, but it's, I'm really good at cooking or I'm really good at this or I'm not good at anything. I'm just funny or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and then, you know, more and more of those influencers or creators or whatever you want to call them are getting represented by these, you know, essentially networks of creators, these MCNs that Mm -hmm. then sort of represent them like sort of like a publisher, but maybe more like an agency. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it, it's super interesting to think about the equivalent for news. Yeah. Like, do you need to work for a news company to report the news right. anymore? I I guess I, I so one, I, I think that's going to be sort of for that ecosystem to decide and figure out. I think at least from what I can tell and just working at Facebook, like, Facebook really does care a lot about publishers themselves. And, and there is like... You know, a lot of us who work on the news partnerships team come from 
media in a lot of times legacy media companies and we have that affinity towards it and we do care about you know helping them preserve themselves that being said like I think that there is probably as it becomes easier to tell your story and maybe you can't connect with the publisher that you want to to work under like there is going to be that space for maybe you know just going going at it alone as a journalist um so it'll, I think it's just a really interesting thing to to watch and to see if that ecosystem becomes more bifurcated going forward. Because yeah, you have creators who are still doing their stuff, and you then you have larger you know talent groups and things like that. Still, yeah, and so. of course they have the brand equity and they have the marketing dollars and yeah. whatever. But as far as actually creating and distributing, those things have gotten really cheap and really easy. Mm-hmm. In other words, to broadcast a live video is free now yep. or you know whatever I have unlimited data on my T-Mobile plan and yeah. I could just pop open my phone and I don't know there's a car crash down the street and all of a sudden I'm I'm broadcasting yep. just like you know whatever New York One would be broadcasting about this mm-hmm. car crash in my neighborhood um, so a lot of those things have become equalized yes. you know the discovery piece I think is still maybe the hardest I agree with you, and I think that that's the the publishers that, or the so say the social based publishers that figure out the right way to discover good people and you know collect them together in some sort of way. I think that's going to be like a, a winning group of publishers. Also, it's a, it's a cheaper way to do it too. You don't have to hire a whole journalistic staff. Um, I've had conversations around that recently. It's just kind of interesting, like you know how how can you do that cheaply? So hmm. yeah. Um, so you alluded a little bit to some of the other people that you work with and mm-hmm. their backgrounds. It's I find that when people talk about Facebook, they talk about it like it is just this thing, like Facebook, as if it exists in, in a vacuum um, and makes decisions like some sort of robot or something. Mm-hmm. But Facebook is just a collection of human beings, just like any other company yeah. in the world. Um, and so specifically, when I talk to media folks, and they talk about Facebook in that same way. Like Facebook this, Facebook's going to change the algorithm. Facebook is going to do X. And obviously there's a group of people inside Facebook that make any of those decisions or any decision at all. And so, you know, the group that you work with, as I understand it, is really sort of advocating for these publishers and media folks and journalists. And, and so who are these people? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, well, and, and just one thing that I, th- I think we were touching on before is I think that Facebook um, hasn't done as good of a job as some of the other tech companies. I think, like I was mentioning, Google comes to mind um, at sort of projecting out the culture and the people who work there, and that the, that it is made up of lots of you know lots of different individual personalities. Google makes it a point to talk about being googly and things like that, and I think. Um, Facebook needs to do a little bit better of a job of just like showing, showcasing more of us individually. And, um, there's, there's starting to be more of that. Um, but you know, definitely, um, there's some room, room there for us to, us to grow. Um, Facebookly. Yeah. Facebookly. Yeah. It doesn't have the same ring to it. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so, um, on our team, it's sort of a mix of ex journalists, um, um, people who come from the social media teams at other um, at, at publishers. Um, I myself have you know a background working on business development at a, a publisher. So that was everything actually from trying to grow our subscribers to um, helping build the paywall to um, doing partnerships with um, other media companies like the New York Times. And 
Um, then there are also folks who just have a really data-driven background. And um, one of my colleagues came from the Hillary Clinton campaign. Like, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a mix of people. Um, but I think that that's really good for, um, for the team because you have people who understand different uh, sizes, not, not just understand different kind of iterations of media companies, but also understand um, different you know, size companies understand different um, functions. Like for me myself, I think coming from a finance background and specifically wealth management, it's actually been super helpful to um, think about how some of the lessons that I took away from that could be applied to um, what we're doing internally at Facebook. So like one thing that we used to do in wealth management is we would take a look at, um, you know, kind of do periodic health checks of our um, clients of, uh, funds and see like if someone was had looked like they were sitting in too much cash like maybe we should go reach out to them and just let them know this is where they stood and now there's sort of an opportunity and I, I see it as like having that regular standing health check of each of our publishers um you know uh, traffic data of their engagement data and like saying okay what are our thresholds that we feel like we should maybe reach out and just flag you know hey we noticed that this seems like an anomaly like you know just want to make sure you're good and um, adding some of those things in, in place that I think so much of what we've been doing to this point has been reactive because there's been so much inbound, the team wasn't that big. Um, and now we're trying to think about ways to be more proactive, go out to people and, and sort of show that we are listening and, and, and worrying about, um, you know, worrying about their pages just as much as they are. So. Right. And probably surprising them like, Hey, like we saw this and they're like, Oh, you were paying attention. Like you were looking, you know, that's when you can do that, that's amazing. And it feels different to the client. I don't know how you guys refer to them. Partner. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we call our, our partners as well. The, um, because right. It, it, it is more active and more sort of preemptive, you know, and really makes it feel like someone's looking out for you. Right. And I think that that also then makes it feel less like it's just like a big box that is Facebook. Yeah. Um, also, you know, the a lot of these publishers have a sales contact on the sales side of Facebook. And so it is confusing because you're like, who am I talking to about what? Um, you know, a lot of times like the, the publisher teams are way smaller and, and Facebook can feel like a, a large place to kind of canvas through or if you maybe have an issue someone else might reach out to you if it's like an operational question and they are supposed to help you with it um, the way the partnerships team really tries to to serve our our partners is um, have someone who um, maybe comes from an industry and has like relationships around um, around the the ecosystem than someone who's slightly more data-driven and can help out with analysis and um, looking at, you know, what's going on with their with their pages um, or with other things that they might be testing. And then also a partner engineer. So that's someone who can talk mm. directly to CTO and speak their language. Wow. So, um, so there is that built-in infrastructure. Yes, yeah, so you really have sort of the right representatives from each area of the business. Exactly. Um, and then I would imagine you guys get a lot of product feedback. Yes. For better or worse. Yes. Um, And that's, that's, you know, it's a a tension because, so one, I think one challenge just for Facebook in general is um, kind of like you were talking about, Facebook often comes up at big conferences at, um, you know, different media industry events. And if some, if we are working with like one publisher on a potential pilot or testing something out, um, 
it gets out very quickly. And so then the, and then people are chomping at the bit and the expectation is that it's going to be, it's going to come out yesterday, you know, right. and, and people just sort of, um, you know, there was word that Facebook will, you know, be looking at some sort of a subscriptions project product. And now it's like, people ask us all the time about it. And we're like, we, you know, it's just, it's very early stages. Like we were trying to have conversations with publishers to understand what, what they might want, you know, like, but it gets out quickly. Right, every little rumor, every little, it's yeah. hard to act anonymously. Exactly. I and I think, and I think that's, so that's tough. So like on the product side, like the product teams work really hard and we have engineers on everything, but, um, it's iterative, it's testing, it's, um, trying out, you know, you're, you think about all the things that are available on Facebook and, and just in one app and then to be testing out and building more things on top of it and making it a clean user experience. Um, you know, you think about how many teams get involved, engineering, it's UX, it's, um, it's our marketing teams, it's our, like our partnerships teams, it's, um, the finance, legal, privacy people, like it's, it's so many different groups, um, to bring one product out to market. Um, and so, it also requires when you get feedback on something, you have to kind of go through a lot of those channels again to to test and to to make modifications. Yeah, and I would imagine also, you know, there's a temptation for the squeaky wheel to get the oil, but if you're hearing really the same sort of feedback from multiple different types of publishers, like when you have such a big versatile tool, the changes that you do make, you want it to be applicable to the largest number of you know, partners, yep. um, and, and, you know, it, it's a careful balance. Whenever you're building a platform, you don't want to necessarily play to the lowest common denominator because you end up with something sort of watered down. But at the same time, you sort of do have to play to a common denominator, right? Because otherwise you are spending a lot of energy on something that only a small percentage of users will ever use. Yeah, absolutely. Right. That's, that's tricky. So you talked a little bit about your finance background. Yeah. Did you always have an interest in media and or was that something that sort of evolved over time? Like how did how did that transition happen? Because on the face of it, those seem like two very different industries. And then now into the tech side of media, you know, so maybe three different industries that you're sort of jumping between. Was that always sort of the plan, you know, um, or did you sort of just discover these new opportunities as they came? So I, I wouldn't say it was so much, I think, so it's, I spent five years in finance and, um, towards like, I'd say my fourth, fourth year or so I started to feel pretty restless and just realized that, you know, it was my first job out of college. It was a, a, a very fortunate job to have. And, um, I think I just sort of started to wonder like, is this what I'm going to be doing forever? Um, and then I thought like really long and hard about what it is that I, like I just enjoyed doing or like what, what gave me like sounds like a very Marie Kondo of me to be like, does this give, like, is what is it, what gives me joy in my regular, um, <laughs> there's actually this great New Yorker cartoon that just came out. It's, um, a, um, a, like a burglar, like you see him in, in like a home and he's holding like a, a piece that looks like he's about to steal. And it's like, does this give me joy? Oh like, God, I mean, it's, so, so, it's so good. It's so good. Um, but, um, you know, I was four years in kind of said, what do I really enjoy doing? And, I just, I, I've always loved to read and I've always loved to, to learn and, and consume publishers' content. And I like, you know, for my, uh, this, I actually, in some ways, I think Gawker was kind of a gateway, like wow. back in, back when I was in, in college and I was like, f was just curious about the New York media scene. I would always read it and like, 
Um, you know, it wasn't always always nice, but yeah, R.I.P. But but in the original iteration, it was like way more kind of media industry um, insidery, and I just found that stuff kind of fascinating. So I think I just was like, oh, this is something that I might like. Gawker used to have a really great um, Subway smells map, and they would describe like people would tag different smells of um, <laughs> like that, that they and like. And it was just some of them were too perfect because I knew like ex- the exact smell they were talking about oh, from being so in that gross. subway station. Um, but anyway, that's an aside. Um, so yeah, I um, I think I started to I started to have some conversations. Um, it was actually it was um, pretty lucky. I think I think a lot of people took a chance on me and just heard okay, I you know I got some good good uh, mentors to introduce me to people and. Um, they were like, okay, you're coming from finance and are curious about media, like why the switch and like tell me more. Um, and I think that, that was like a good way to start that initial conversation. Having that understanding of the industry um, just from like um, a by, like kind of as a bystander, but just seeing some of the, you know, just being obsessed with reading about the industry, but then also reading the content, I think really helped me. So that was the first, like that was the biggest leap I think I had to make. Um, then working at foreign policy, like I think once you're inside, you start to see a lot of the challenges, uh, that a publisher is facing and how, you know, you feel that tension with social and how much you feel in some ways, like you rely on it, but you don't want to give it too much. And, you know, how do you protect your core audience on, on your platform, um, and make sure that they really feel an affinity to you and get that brand recognition. Um, but then also how do you discover new audiences via social Um, so I started to feel that tension and, um, I, I was hearing more and more about how Facebook was investing in, you know, different ways to, to serve publishers. And I just thought that it would really behoove me to, to join Facebook and understand like, you know, what it is that, what their game plan is kind of for publishers. I think, um, and, and I sort of went in there being like, well, I'm going to be the only person who cares about this. And like, you know, he's going to be arguing on behalf of the publisher and it turns out like everybody is like and you know most of them are ex-journalists or producers or editors and they're like they, they're like no I really care about this like you know they're they're people who worked in local newsrooms like in San Diego and um you know we're out covering you know covering like all sorts of like really in-depth like serious local stories and I want to um I want to help save it and you know and and a really empathetic to the the plight of the local newsroom. So, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like they rounded up all of the people that are passionate about this that also have a knack for technology. Yeah. And like, put them in the room together. That's that's the hope. I mean, we yeah, and I think, and who can who who can also I think communicate back to some of the technical folks like the things that are needed, right? So you need those. You need a group of people who are sort of going to say like. This, no, but actually, if you're sitting in a newsroom or if you're looking at data and insights, this is the actual information that you need that's really useful. Because think about it, if you've never worked at a publisher or if you've never worked at in a newsroom, you might not actually know how things work or what like some small little functionality thing is that is pretty crucial. So, yeah. um, or even it, when things are called or yeah. like, you know, every industry has its sort of lingo and its norms and it's you know so what about the tech side like where does that come in because was it really more out of a curiosity of understanding sort of the other side of the fence um or did you also sort of always have some natural inclination towards technology itself because i would imagine you have to be fairly proficient on the tech side to be able to 
liaise between the publisher and the you know technical folks within Facebook? So I think what I've always um, enjoyed is how technology can enhance storytelling. Um, I would I would say that that's to be totally honest, that's kind of how far as as far as I would go in terms of being like a soup. Like I was not like tech company or bus. Like that was not it at all. It mm-hmm. was like this specific team at this specific company because I think that this is like where the industry is going. Like I remember when when Cheddar um, did launch and they were like launching a Facebook only show. Show I was like, oh my goodness, it's all happening. Like mm-hmm. you know, like I I just remember like be being kind of like mind blown and just being like, this is like where, like where I want to go to because I'm so, it feels like the forefront and what's next and what, um, where more and more publishers are are going to go to. Um, so I think that that for me was like where it sort of stops. Uh, I mean, like for me, I actually love Instagram stories and following journalists on, on Instagram and following newsrooms on there. I think that it's really interesting to see how they storytell or show the narrative behind how they created a story. Um, there were some really great journalists covering Irma um, and showing like them driving into the storm, like, um, you know, just like little clips, like by the way, like a, a, a short snapshot of like somebody, you know, um, like, uh, brooming water into a drain and things like that like seeing little things like that just but a quick snippet and like as you're you know as you're sitting in like perfectly sunny conditions and like not a worry in the world and you're just like well this is like puts me there for a second and feels really real um so I just I I really enjoy that as a way of storytelling but I think that that's what makes me gravitate towards technology so do you guys work mostly thinking about like sort of Facebook proper or is it inclusive of Instagram and even like WhatsApp. We we have a um, a team um, that does focus on Instagram. WhatsApp is a little bit more um, a little bit more separated, um, but in, we have like a, a an Instagram news team, and so often we'll sort of meet in tandem and come up with sort of like a holistic set of recommendations. Stuff like we just launched the Watch tab and have shows now yeah. on there. Um, I think that I think that shows like are a really interesting opportunity for Facebook because um, you know you, YouTube is one thing where it's like you go in and you sort of like fall down a rabbit hole and just like kind of have like multiple looped videos happening and you sort of like next thing you know you don't you know you're like watching I was I was watching um, something about the the room of that there's that it's that like really like you know, B movie kind of thing that. Um, James Franco was doing a movie about the making of that movie. Oh. And so I just got like curious. And then all of a sudden I had watched like eight videos yeah, of like yeah, terrible exactly. scenes from the room. But the nice thing about watch on Facebook is that it's basically like you go to a show page and you watch like, you know, episodic content and it's, you can watch full seasons. You can space it out how you want. We have partners who are releasing one episode every week and at a predictable time. So it's kind of a, it's a totally, I mean, everything old is new again in a way it's like taking you back to yeah you know, the way like, that you know right tv it's t- um, it's tv but it's in your app but it's your in your app or yeah. elsewhere exactly so here's a funny uh twist my wife jess is actually going to be on one of those shows in the Whoa. watch tab the skim is doing actually two shows with facebook yeah um, one is this like celebrities in bathtubs reading the news or something mm-hmm. and the second one is called get off the couch they just announced it and um it's sort of like shark tanky 
And my wife is launching a new company on the side. Uh, it's like a new bra for nursing moms. Okay, cool. And um, anyway, so they're like a contestant on this Facebook show. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really funny. So the trailer just came out and they're like freaking out. That's you know? so cool, yeah. Um, but the show's not not live yet. But it's interesting because, I mean, there's actually, there's a lot to unpack there. You have The Skim, mm-hmm. which is a, you know, email publisher yeah. now doing episodic video content on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's true. The Skim got its start as a newsletter. Like right. that's, that is, it is pretty wild. So they're really trying to cover all the... All the bases. And their app is number one in the news category on the iOS app store. Really? So they're just like all over the place. Well, and it also shows you that it's like carving out these niche audiences and and figuring out um, it's, you know, we're not in a world anymore where you're going to have these huge audiences that everybody is watching the same TV show. That's just like not how it is. But the great thing is you have so much data on who your your, um, viewer is or who your email recipient is and um, you can more, you know, better target the kind of content that you're giving. One one thing that you know I thought was like a really good, um, a really great piece that Bustle did. It was a video. Um, it's a video where they were just in New York City. They know a lot of their audiences from New York. Um, they went um, around and asked homeless women how they deal with their periods every month, and that was something that like, you know, generated a lot of conversation amongst me and my friends. We're like. You know, it's like it's people who, you know, in some cases, like you may have like encountered on the street, like you never like really like you don't think about the right, humanity. Don't yeah, think like about that. yeah, you don't think about it. Like it's a women's issue. Like people are getting more comfortable like talking about things like that. Like it, I just thought it was like a great example of like knowing your audience and understanding your audience. And like no, that's not going to appeal to everybody. But the nice thing about bustle and bustle existing is that it can kind of fill like a, a more niche audience and. And respond to what they're curious about and, and really like like hit that mark so perfectly. Yeah. It's funny that women is considered a niche. Well, yeah, it, it really <laughs> is. Yeah, I know. The, the numbers don't really uh, suggest I, that. <laughs> but, it, but it's crazy because it is like, a, or and I guess it would, I would even call it like, um, Maybe I know what you like, mean. It's more like special interest. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, Women who care, maybe, okay. or something right. like that. <laughs> When you were on the media media side, you were uh, working in business development and you were saying, you know, that that encompassed a lot of things, including, um, you know, subscriber uh, acquisition and and um, I would assume other sorts of monetization, advertising, whatever. Mm-hmm. When you think about business models for publishers, it is not necessarily even relating to Facebook, um, although it might play into it like. Where do you fall on the spectrum? Because I I feel like, you know, this is another pendulum that I see swinging all over the place where you have online publishers, whether they have a legacy component or not, that it seemed like the play was go big and go free. Mm -hmm. Right. It's just like volume, 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 all advertising revenue. And then when you hit a certain threshold, you can start to do more sort of integrated native advertising experiences, sponsored type of content, you know, all of these publishers opening content studios and mm-hmm. really doing really, I mean, if they do it right, it's, it really is a very cool and tight integration between brands and, and editorial and whatever. And then on the other side, you have, you know, um, just straight up subscription models 
you know, which a lot of the sort of hardcore news organizations have been doubling down on. Right. And the ones that are, you know, that are publicly available are growing. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at all these big news brands, you know, um, they are growing their digital subscribers like crazy. Yeah. And so now I hear murmuring sort of on the, you know, on the first side of the of the spectrum being like, oh, subscriptions, that's interesting. Yeah. Smaller volume, higher value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there seems to be this sort of, you know, tension or, or debate going on. And so, you know, as someone that has lived on the publisher side, now on the social side, which is clearly the free ad supported type model, how do you think about publishing in the future? Like, how are publishers supposed to make their money? What do consumers want? All of the above. Yeah. I think that um, unless you are some of these, like, kind of the legacy brands that are going to, the, the flagship brand that is going to do it really well, like a New York Times seeing a huge subscription increase, like, post, you know, post-election, like, think some you you are going to have examples like that and i think also like the new york times is just really quality content obviously like i think there there's going to be some on that end i think that those can really justify a subscription um but i think like for something like a buzzfeed it's going to have to be that like advertiser model i think that that's the only way to, way to go for them um what i think is really tough is that in in between and unfortunately i still sort of view it as you have to do a hodgepodge of a bunch of different things so it's having a subs- it's it is having a subscription model, um, but it's bringing new people in by letting some of your content go free. Um, I I don't think that you necessarily have to have all of it free and all of it available. I like I think that um, a lot of our publishers, you know, who even use instant articles on Facebook, like not every single piece is on instant articles, but. The majority of them are because they know that it will drive value. They can include ad units in there. There's other ways to monetize. Um, and then I think also part of it, you know, we've seen a lot of these publishers, um, especially I've noticed the Condé Nast brands really um, add a like an events kind of component to what they're doing and like a cultivating the communities that they're building through their publications. So like Bon Appetit, they did like their, they do their like hot ten restaurants, but then they also do like a dinner with those hot ten restaurants and like invite people, and you can um, have all sorts of events that are affiliated with that. Um, the New Yorker Festival. I was kind of joking to a friend the other day. I was saying like, oh, like why hasn't like New Yorker Festival gotten so expensive? And I was like, oh wait, I can answer my own question. I work in this industry. Like you know, ad dollars are getting squeezed, and like they subscriptions alone don't make up for the cost. So that's why it's so expensive. But people will buy it, and people want to go because. Um, you know, it's the way that they structured it this year, for example, is basically like all their um, main profiles, all those people are being interviewed by the, the author who um, wrote the piece. So, you know, one, you're not going to get the same content because that's already been covered. But and two, like people already have an affinity towards that relationship and the way that, that journalists wrote about uh, wrote about them before. Um, so then I think that that's I think. I know that's sort of like a non-answer, but I think that that hodgepodge is kind of what I still see as the solution for now. Yeah, I I, I don't think it's a non-answer. I think the hodgepodge might be the the official term here going forward. Yeah. Because I think the days of one size fits all business strategy for a publisher are over. Yeah. In other words, that everyone is going to get the content for free, um, or everyone is going to have to subscribe, or everyone is going to have to anything. 
it might just be sort of a passe idea. Yeah. And that, um, you know, if you look at other industries like video games, for instance, they understood this early, especially in, in mobile gaming, that you're going to have sort of the largest volume of players, which are free and ad supported. And then they make the like the average really successful like iPhone game, let's say, makes the majority of its money from a very small percentage of users. They call them the whales. And these are people that are spending hundreds or maybe even thousands of dollars a month on in-app purchases mm-hmm. and buying, you know, virtual grain to feed their virtual animals or virtual swords to beat the virtual bad guys. Like, yeah. um, and, and you need the big volume to, to create the funnel to find those people. Right. Um, and there are other industries that, that are like that too. Even the music industry, you know, you have these super fans that, you know, buy the most expensive tickets and follow Taylor Swift on tour to every mm-hmm. show and buy every single thing that she offers uh, on her website as far as merchandise and every behind the scenes video and whatever. Mm-hmm. And those people are spending a lot of money proportionate to someone that listens as part of their Spotify membership. Right. You know, exactly. Um, and so there's a lot of blueprints here, but for media, it still feels sort of unnatural and new. You know, it's like, well, we charge for our content. What do you mean we should give it for free? Right. Or no, we give it for free to everyone. That's the whole point. We would never put anything behind a paywall. Or And then, of course, when you think about events and, and other sorts of way to monetize, like, yeah, if you have a cool brand, go start telling T-shirts like Taylor Swift. Yeah. Like, monetize however you can. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think also, like, I think that we're starting to see this more now um, that the, that and, you know, there was that, that really old Economist ad years and years ago um, that, like, that really did hearken to showing that, like, you, you get the job because you read The Economist, essentially. And, like, there's, there's been a lot of stuff like that. But um, in the past, I think, with, like, brand affiliation. But I think now media publishers are, are a lot more comfortable kind of even saying to their uh, readers, followers, like, that you are defining yourself by the brands that you affiliate with on the information side as well. Um, like I think the Washington Post picking democracy dies in darkness. Like, you know, yes, that is a um, a statement about, you know, them maybe feeling like under siege by the current administration, but it also... A little dramatic. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was, a, lot of, a lot of things said like, it sounded like a, like a Metallica album or something oh, yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that, that um, it's sort of a reminder like... Hey, I'm I'm buying this, you know, I'm buying this paper like I am standing for democracy and like that, you know, who are you when you are affiliating with a, a media brand? I think that there's going to be a lot more of that. Almost the way that your clothing brands or the music you listen to yes. sort of would define you in high school or something. Exactly. So, do you think there's a problem with that? I mean, societally, if we start identifying ourselves based on the news that we consume, like, I mean, that's happening already to a degree. Um, and, you know, you find out that someone that you thought seemed pretty cool, like, watches Fox News. And you're like, oh, well, I guess I didn't know them at all. Okay. You know, it's like, yeah. like, is that the world we want to live in? It's no, I, I guess it isn't the world that we want to live in. That being said, it's kind of... Um, I guess... It, it's like any, it's like anything else. Like, right. It's like, it's, um, 
we we find different ways to signal about ourselves and and how we you know I don't really see it as a problem because I think that it's just another way that we sort of signal who we are and you know what we care about and yes publications are supposed to be in somewhat somewhat impartial and supposed to um, but supposed to say something about yourself, but are, are supposed to give you new information to help you grow as a person. Um, but that's already happening in terms of like what you like in newsfeed, what you, um, you know, what you, what you are seen carrying around. There's already some of that signaling that's happening. It's just that now news publishers are going to be a little bit more overt about it, I think. And, and it's to a business end so that they can keep doing their jobs and doing, you know, doing good work. Yeah, in a weird way, or I guess it's it's actually not that weird. Um, it's There's a parallel to the political spectrum as well, where the middle has sort of disappeared and there's this stratification. So if you're a publisher that was always sort of on one side or sort of on the other side, it's like you're doubling down to really try to appeal to your peeps. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and I think it's beyond media. I think different brands are doing that and what's so interesting about Facebook and and other social networks that um, or social media uh, right you guys don't like to be called social network anymore mm. it's just social media yeah, social. Um, social platforms <laughs> social platforms yeah um, that do personalize the experience to get back to, to what we talked about sort of at the beginning is that everyone ends up seeing what they want to see and hanging out with the people that want to see the same things they want to see. And I'm not passing judgment on that stratification, but it is a a direct result that I think took a lot of us by surprise of what happens when you have an algorithm or a series of algorithms, a feedback loop that essentially shows you more of the things that you already like. Right. And more of the things that your friends already like and shows you the friends that like the same things you like, which of course is not dissimilar to the real world, right, by when, the way. Like right. you hang out with the people that like the same TV shows that you like and like the same restaurants that you like and, you know, um, but it's automated. So it sort of like goes ad nauseum to the to the extreme mm-hmm. version. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like a, a sickness. Sometimes I'm guilty of it. So, so... Sometimes I will send a tweet and then I'll find myself just looking at my own tweets and sort of like marveling at how clever I am. <laughs> and then I catch myself and yeah. I'm like in this moment of just like self-loathing. Where right. I'm like, because the ultimate newsfeed is the one that I wrote because I agree with everything. Yes, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, that's like so sick. Way to put it, yeah. Uh, and, and so in a w- weird way, it's like, the, you know, the algorithm uh, is is trying to get you as close to that as you could. Like, right. you wouldn't literally want to just see a newsfeed of your own posts, but how close can you get to that right. um, is almost what it's optimizing for. And so if you're a brand and you want to break through, you have to, like, pick a click in yeah. the school cafeteria. Yeah, it, that's a really good way. I mean, I, th- I, I would argue that, it, that you could call it picking a voice maybe um, and that in some cases, like, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think even like an example like 
Um, I don't know if you follow the Insta- in, follow the Instagram account Betches. You you probably don't, but no. um, but it's like I'm not a big Instagrammer in general. Really? No. We're gonna have to change that because I, I I I'm really have turned into an Instagram really a story evangelist. Like I we'll we'll we'll, we'll talk about it post. Yeah. No. I mean, it. everyone. It's funny. I am like a like ranking. I'm like a Twitter person. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the people I know don't use or really get Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel the same way about Instagram. It's the inverse. Everyone I know is obsessed with Instagram and I like have never been able to get into it and I feel yeah. like I'm missing out. All right. Well, like we'll like play around a okay. little later a little bit. So, so on the Betches Instagram account, they will do these stories that are like, so it's like they're, it's like swipe up to read about how you can like still be a drunk and lose weight or like, you know, <laughs> th- this like the 10 worst things about like being a, a bridesmaid and like it's a really specific niche but they have and it's kind of like an obnoxious niche right and it's like this a, a, a obnoxious voice but like people are sort of sort of sort of like but I am curious like there is a little part of me that just like wants to still drink a lot and lose weight you know like there's um I think that finding that like being like knowing your audience really well um and I think it gives a kind of unique opportunity to have like the part like a have to acknowledge that there are like personalities out there and just like fun, you know, I find there, I've, I've been really amazed at how, how, how many Instagram accounts will post like a meme that's like basically about expressing anxiety and like how, how liked it is and how, how many people tag their friends and stuff. And it's like an interesting social conversation that started to now happen around like you know, depression and anxiety in this like kind of humorous way on online. Um, this is sort of a tangent, but like I just think um, that that sort of personality coming through is is a nice upside. So yeah, like it is one singular voice and a really specific kind of voice, but you're also it feels easier now to find like oh wait, like there's like somebody who feels the way that I do out there. I guess yeah, I like that a lot. And I guess another way to think about it is that. Right. If every brand is sort of, you know, doubling down on being obnoxious or being whatever adjective, you know, political or otherwise, but each of us is some mix of those things. So when you click on that Betches post, it's not because their posts represent 100% of your personality, but there's some part of your personality that overlaps with that. That's like the you know, 100% potency version yeah. of that piece of your personality. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the ultimate newsfeed is sort of pulling together that, you know, sort of aggregation, that algamation of all of those little pieces of your personality that that together sort of paint the picture of yeah who you are. And I guess then the question is like, where are there blinders on my own personality that I need to then access like other viewpoints and think and I think that's the thing that still hasn't been figured out on social probably in my day-to-day life to be honest with you like the people that I interact with I think that that's just like a um you know I was listening to um another I think it was a like a, a news podcast and they were saying how like you know looking at uh demographic trends since you know, 2000, like people are moving more into more and more homogenous communities where people are in the same kind of careers and economic statuses and educational statuses as each other. And I mean, we've heard that a lot, you know, yeah. post uh, November last year. And, and I, you know, how do you get out, get out of that? And how do you get out of that in a way that feels genuine too? Um, and really like, 
is it that you train yourself to, 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 you know, say I'm going to dedicate like five, 10 minutes. Like, you know, I, I'm going to be honest. I used to, I, I added Alex Jones to my feed to see like what might happen. And I had to, t- I, it was making me so upset. I had to take it out. Like I, you know, so the effort was, <laughs> in a good, I mean, it came from the right place, I think. Yeah. Right? I mean, maybe I went too. maybe I course corrected too far. Right. Um, you got an easier way. Yeah, there. exactly. And I, and actually I think a lot of, a lot of publishers, um, are testing that like, here's a slightly different opinion. Mm. Um, you know, there's definitely talk of that. But there's so much backlash when that happens. You know, the New York times will, will hire a columnist yeah. more on the right. And then people are writing and I'm canceling my subscription, even though I've been subscribing for 30 years and I'm so angry. How could you get this guy? Yeah. There's like, say something nice about Trump and everyone freaked out or something. Yeah. Like that. Right. And I, I think that certainly doesn't, you know, it's, it's something I think about a lot and have talked about on this podcast is the whole idea of media as a for-profit industry seems to have some inherent problems. Right. I don't have a suggestion for a better alternative. Um, but in other words, let's say you really were losing subscribers because you're you're posting these alternate viewpoints. Well, at some point, someone in the organization says, listen, we have to stop posting these alternate viewpoints because we can't afford it. We're literally... It's, it's bad for the business, right. you know? And so um, that's that's depressing in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know? I mean, there's often this conversation of like, do publishers become patronages in some ways? And is it that, that you know, Jeff Bezos model where you have um, someone who's wealthy who can say like, I'm going to, and, you know, he's been from everything that I've heard, a good steward to the Washington Post and has really let them do their own thing. And I remember like, um, he, you know, they, they, there was, they were doing some really great, like reporting on the secret service during the Obama administration. And, um, and, it, and, and I remember reading something about how their journalists did feel kind of free to dig deep on one subject mm-hmm. matter because they kind of didn't have that, feel that same pressure financially. And, um, I don't know, but it's tough because how many, you know, great, great stewards are out there. And then also like what happens if you start writing a lot of bad stuff about Amazon? Like you, yeah. you never know. Yeah. And only the big brands would ever get the attention of a billionaire yeah. to invest in the first place. But then there's the other side, which is, you know, sort of the crowdfunded patronage, like, like a site like Patreon, which is allowing even very small independent publishers to, get paid on a sort of, you know, pay as you want model mm-hmm. or, um, you know, which could be recurring, could be one time, whatever. And so the community is, is supporting, um, these publishers, not because it's mandatory to access the content, but because I really believe in this, I want this person or this, this company to, to go and, and do this work. And so I'm willing to pay for it, right. you know, um, so there are definitely some alternate models that that maybe help yeah counteract some of that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean it's it's just it's very fractured right now. That's really like it's such a fragmented model. Um I think we all feel for local news and yeah. I think that's something that is something that we still have to figure out and figure out a better way to help them out and I, and actually our news team is expanding the local team because there is this understanding that like we need to get in there and make sure that like those stories are being told. It seems like a lost art. Like, I don't know if you talk to anyone, I'm just picking the number arbitrarily, let's say over the age of 60, 
they can tell you everything that happened in the local news today. Mm-hmm. And then if I ask anybody, you know, under the age of 40, they've never watched local news in their whole life. Right. But like, ultimately, I would like to know what's happening locally, but like, it would never occur to me to check out the local news. Yeah. I'm only looking at like national, international Same. events. Yeah. Which, you know, and, and I don't know if that's because we're in New York City and maybe if we were in a small town or community, we, we would want to know every traffic accident and mm-hmm. every policy change at the school district. And I don't, I literally can't even tell you good examples of local news because I'm like so uneducated. Well, no, it's, 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 um, like, I think you're right. I think also, I mean, I, sometimes I wonder that about myself in New York is like, do I just, is it because I'm not empathetic? And like, sometimes I really worry that that's like what's actually, um, why. And I'm like, no, but I think I am. I just, I, but, but you do, <laughs> In some, I think you are. I think one kind of, you know, I will say, um, like, you know, like liberal East Coast, like whatever, like that stereotype. Like one thing is it's, it is sort of like the information that you take in, is it quote unquote useful in some way, right? Like when I was talking about like the published publications that you read being like an expression of your branding, like some things aren't like maybe you, like you can't pull it up at like a trip at trivia, but it's like good to know what's happening and to realize that like, you know, what's occurring to the people around you and the people that you're passing on a regular basis. Well, But even at a, let's say a party or a get together dinner, no one's asking like, Hey, did you see what happened downtown with the Dunana? Right. It's like, did you see what's happening in North Korea? Right. Exactly. Like, it's yeah. These macro level news events that I feel like are the sort of talk of the community of my community yeah um and i wonder if that is a factor of my age or where i live i, I honestly i don't know because yeah. i can't like step outside myself um you know and that in some other scenario would i be talking about sort of more local level events right um which is weird there's some um so like the dallas morning news is doing some really great stuff where they're actually going and helping um they're working with like local libraries and um, are working on like news literacy for with families like there and sort of showing like you know this is how you spot like not only false news but how you um, how you do stay like informed as a member of the community. I think that's like a really that's really great. cool and and I wonder if we will eventually like I you know I who knows like I I'm maybe in New York my whole life or maybe I'll move to another city and um, you know if that will if when I move, if I, if I were to go somewhere else and, you know, get curious about the community, maybe that's what happens. And then you start to right. read that local news and get that curiosity. I mean, the irony is that you would imagine that the internet would expand one's horizons. Mm-hmm. In other words, it allows you to live in a different place than where you live. And it allows you to interact with people that you wouldn't be able to interact with in physical reality and could open your views to people that you wouldn't get to see speak in person or that your friends are talking about and yet somehow we end up basically in you know sort of just an online version of our offline yeah lives and for some reason we all seem unable to really take advantage of what the internet has to offer which is all of these other viewpoints and all of these other amazing things. Like when you travel and you go to a different country or even just another place in the U.S. and you talk to people, you really get a sense of what it's like to be there. And, and you, uh, at least when I do it, like I, I, those are always really sort of mind-expanding 
moments. I love traveling for that reason. And to me, it's almost like a missed opportunity that we're not doing that all day, every day because the internet allows you to do that. Mm -hmm. But we just end up like, you know, liking articles that our friends from college post. Yeah, no, it's so true. And I think, so it's actually interesting that you say that because I think also one thing, one opportunity for Facebook, like where, like I will wander down a rabbit hole and get to certain websites, but they're always these like nice, clean looking websites. And like some of the local news websites that I've gone on to, they're like absolutely terrible. And you're like, oh God, goodness, like I'm not going to go and like and, and navigate on this. But if there's a way, like that's one nice thing about platforms is that they can unify that experience. And if we can figure out a better way to share, you know, get more of those alternate viewpoints surfaced, um, that it does equalize the experience in some ways and makes things, um, you know, easier to consume yeah it's it's so true because you are sort of democratizing a lot of those resources but it works you know it can be used for good or evil um in the sense that i think that's what was so interesting about the whole fake news phenomenon is that those sites look great yeah you know oh yeah and, yeah and you go to these fake news sites and it seems really legit and it's well designed and it's responsive for mobile and you know because it's it's easy to build a great looking website um, that used to be something, let's say, that only the New York Times could really afford to do. Mm-hmm. But now anybody could do it. You know, you can go on Squarespace and pop a, open a great looking website for like $10 a month or something. Yeah. You know, um, so it's interesting because the platforms also sort of, you know, I don't mean Facebook necessarily, but like but these sort of tools that allow anybody to, to make something that looks good and professional is yeah. like sort of a blessing and a curse. I think that I, I may, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I think we as humans will also be able to, in our analog brains, be able to become better at kind of deciphering what is real and what is is fake. I mean, you there was a piece about how like radio essentially this this was the original false news when you could just put out a radio story and you didn't necessarily know if it was true or not. Yeah, um, and so maybe we're just sort of reverting back around to that and having to reach retrain ourselves and, and get better at that. Well, so one of the last things that I want to ask you about, but I do want to ask you because I don't know if you saw the Apple announcements this week about the new iPhone and they had previously announced this about their augmented reality mm-hmm. platform. I know Facebook also announced an augmented reality platform yep. at F8. Um, and with the new iOS 11, I actually have already started to see some Facebook apps in the update notes saying like now supports augmented reality, mm-hmm. even though I'm not even sure what it means yet. Uh, <laughs> I and, love that you read the update notes. Too. Uh, yes. It's sad. Um, and really thinking about what you just said, which is that, you know, video has historically been over the last 20 years of the internet or whatever, 10 years when video has been really attainable to most is like sort of the proof right? Because you're right. I can say whatever I want here on the quote unquote radio. Mm-hmm. I could write whatever I want. But if I'm showing you a video of something happening, that you can mostly take that as proof that it's really happening. Unless I'm like Steven Spielberg and I have access to some crazy, you know, special effects or something. Right. But that's actually exactly what's happening is that everyone is now getting access to those special right. effects. Yes. And so it's going to become increasingly difficult, even in the world of video, which I feel like was sort of the last frontier. Yeah. yeah the last like pure form of truth media. Mm-hmm. 
now anybody can can go and 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 create a fake video, right. you know, and and what's available today is only the tip of the iceberg. Over the next few years, we're just going to see an explosion there. Um, and so, I hope you're right that there is this sort of analog sense of truth. Um, but is that a conversation that you guys are having around sort of you know augmented reality and virtual reality and how that sort of impacts storytelling? To be frank, like I think that that definitely is, is happening around the company. Um, it's less of an immediate concern right now for our publishers because it does feel like a ways out. Um, I'd say the the focus for them is still um, more around like building building greater communities. I think that's that's what I would say is like our a lot of a lot of Facebook's focus and then also Facebook publishers' focus especially. I think that is the right play because ultimately the the sort of media type du jour is apt to change over time. Right. Um, you know, whatever. Another topic we don't need to get into it is all these media companies pivoting to video and yeah. like firing all their editors and, you know. Um, and to me, anytime that there are these big sort of, you know, clunky moves, they, they that just always sort of sends a red flag to me. Yeah. And I think what you just said is is actually the perfect sentiment, which is that really the only thing that transcends is your audience, is your community, is the brand that you're building. And almost everything else is a variable. Yeah. You know? Can I ask you one question? Yeah. Um, do you think that there are too many content creators out there? Ha. There's, there's, uh, there's I don't know the exact stats, but probably Facebook has these sorts of stats where, you know, the number of new creators coming online, like every millisecond or something. I don't know. Here I am hosting a new podcast. So, (laughs) you know, um, I might be biased. I don't think so. I think that, um, the sort of proliferation of, of content and information is a good thing. And, and actually, um, tangent, I had once put together a Ted talk about this topic actually mm. that was supposed to be at Princeton and then it was like a TEDx and then there was a meningitis outbreak and I never got to give it. Ooh, okay. So I'm still hoping I'll get invited to a TEDx yeah. sometime because I'm sitting on this thing. But it was basically the 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 main sort of gist of it was that yes, there's obviously sort of an exponential explosion, but that if you actually back up through human history, we've been on this train for a very long time. And that the amount of content being created with each subsequent generation really was an explosion over the last. And so while it seems sort of like some new phenomenon, mm-hmm. you know, even taking like the camera. So it used to be that they were incredibly rare and expensive, you know. Um, and then, for instance, when the first sort of affordable camera, which was only affordable to the very rich and it was not very portable and mm-hmm. all these things people were outraged. It was such an invasion of privacy that you could bring a camera out into a public park okay. and take photos. Yeah. Huh. That's, you know? that's uh, yeah, funny to think about now. Right. And, and, you know, if you just basically follow that line of thought, like all the way through, um, the pace is faster and the amount of sort of content creators coming online is, is uh, increasing exponentially. And the amount of, people that can consume. So in other words, fine, I could take a picture and, you know, 
the early 20th century on my nifty camera, but like not that many people are going to see it unless right. it's published in a major newspaper. Mm-hmm. But now I could post a picture on, on Instagram and it could be seen by millions of people in the next five minutes, Yeah, you know? And so, um, I don't know, this was all a long way of, of trying to answer your question, but no, I don't think there's too many, but I do think it, it presents, um, challenges for media and, to be frank, I think that that it's it's good. I think it's a real like shakeup, you know, and that the legacy companies that are sort of, you know, shaking their fists at these youngins who come mm-hmm. on to Facebook and I don't know, that's how I imagine people talk, um, <laughs> you know, and they don't have any overhead costs and yeah. and they're just some kids out in the street, you know, with their phone. It's like, well, yeah, like. So you should do that too. Right. You know, um, so I, I think hopefully it makes everybody better and sort of elevates the game. Um, and to your earlier point, I think it's everybody can find really what's right for them. Right. And maybe we don't all need to read the same newspapers. And, you know, um, it's like how my parents grew up and they were like, I don't know, like five TV stations or something. Yeah. And now there's like hundreds. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Um, I don't know. I'll kick it back to you. Do you think there are too many content creators? I guess it. I will say that I sometimes find it as one part dinosaur myself. I think that sometimes um, it is disappointing to see um, like regurgitation of original reporting and not seeing that attribution to the original source or, or the, the right attribution I think and I think even like sometimes I think Facebook we we need to get better at making sure that there's some some way to signal that this is like the original source of the content um, that like and put that higher up in feed versus um, you know someone's coverage but that's really tough to, to know right yeah, like, like the Xerox of a Xerox yeah, sort of effect yeah or like for example if you have like an op-ed written by someone and their name like isn't going to be in the title right but like then if someone else like another publication writes like so and so wrote this op-ed like you know that could come up as higher signal because people are searching for that name like so there's all sorts of things like that that I think just um you know are you're going to constantly come up with new examples or you have to look at that stuff so I guess that's where sometimes I am like I feel like there's too many there's some of the creators that are out there, it feels like they, that uh, you can use two arguments, I guess. You could say on the one hand, some of those non, non-create, non-creators of original content, they're serving as like really customized news feeds that could, that are kind of interesting in a way. On the flip side of that though, I, it is a point of frustration sometimes I think for me where I feel like, you know, maybe if these other five publications didn't exist that were basically really repeating the same one, like the original storyteller would be able to fund their operation. Better. Yeah. And, and I mean, just to play devil's advocate, you know, those sort of regurgitators ultimately are reaching like, yes, in a perfect scenario, if those five went away, then the original one would just have five times the reach. But um, that's not actually how it works. Yeah. And yeah. so that information is getting disseminated like further as a result, even though it's sort of not, you know, the right way. Right. I don't know. It's 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 tricky. Um, I sense from you a very strong sense of 
journalistic integrity. Yeah, um, and maybe to and, and and maybe to a fault, by the way, because I also do think that um, the platform, like I think everybody uses, like I said, two billion people use it for different things, and I think that there also is like a place for for it to be to to be fun and to to delight, which I'm I think is also a condo phrase, but like it, you know, there is that need for it, um, and so. Like I, I don't think it's playing to the common denominator to also like show me some videos from the dodo because I really find animal videos a relax like a relaxing thing when I feel stressed out at work. Like you know, I think that there is this, um, there is a need for a mix and and also like some content, um, some of the content aggregator type, um, type publishers like they are give, collecting a lot of what I want or what I'm what I'm curious in. And there's, there is some value to that too, right? Saving me times so that I can learn or, or see. Right, more. as the consumer. Yeah, as a consumer. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a trade-off. Um, but I think the media industry is lucky to have people like you with that sense of integrity that are sort of fighting that fight because somebody has to fight it. And without it, there really is no protection against the sort of runaway snowball effect of all animal videos all day right. no offense to the dodo I, <laughs> that stuff is awesome but like um again like it's purposeful like there are real people that are really thinking about these issues and really trying to sort of create that balance because if you just let the the likes dictate the whole thing mm-hmm. you know in sort of this unbridled fury of of just giving you more cat videos you just end up with all cat videos right you know um and so i do think that's there's a real place for news news um and the incentives have to be beyond just like clicks and likes and profits yeah it has to be this greater sense of like purpose right you know um because otherwise you're just entering the ring with with the rest of these heathens um (laughs) (laughs) it's a tough world out there Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on yeah well thank you so much for having me this was great Thank you for listening to this episode of Wizardist. If you'd like to support the podcast, the best thing you can do is go into the podcast app and give this podcast a good rating and review that helps it climb up in the charts. And uh, as always, please pass on to your friends and see you next time.